It's been 15 years since Americans were shaken by the news of hijacked planes slamming into the World Trade Center in Lower Manhattan. It was a beautiful, sunny Tuesday morning when the story started to unfold. This is a special report from News Channel 4. Good morning, everybody. I am Jane Hanson in the News Channel 4 uh, studio this morning to bring you some news. We are looking at a picture now of the World Trade Center, and we have an eyewitness on the telephone who tells us that he has seen an airplane crash into the World Trade Center. His name is Tony Arrigo. He is on East 12th Street. Tony, can you please tell us what yes, you witnessed? Yes, I can tell you what happened. I was taking the garbage out of the building when we heard this roaring engines coming. We looked up and there was a plane. Next thing you know, we heard boom. We ran up to the corner and hit right into the World Trade Center. I'm George Bodarki, and this is Cityscape. Nearly 3,000 people were killed on 9-11, and the needs of families affected by the tragedy were great. That's where Tuesday's Children comes in. The organization formed to help kids and families of 9-11 victims heal and move forward. Fifteen years later, the group is still in operation, helping youth, families, and communities impacted by terrorism and traumatic loss. Terry Sears is the executive director of Tuesday's Children. She joins me now in the studio. Terry, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. So 15 years have passed since the 9-11 attacks, 15 years. Many of us have a story of where we were that day when we first heard of the news. What's your story? So that day, um, I'm, I'm the mother of four children, and um, the kids were at school, and I just remember feeling extremely afraid for them. You know, just no one knew what the extent and the magnitude of the incident was going to be. And um, in, in some ways, I panicked because I went to the school, and I, I, I picked up um, them, and I remember this very vivid recollection of a fighter jet flying over my kid's school, which would normally never, ever would you see that. This is on Long Island. On Long Island, Mm -hmm. yeah. And um, I took the kids and we we drove out to the end of Long Island um, and just to sort of get away from everything. A lot of us had a feeling of helplessness. What do we do? What can we do? You eventually got involved. You did something. (laughs) I did. I had that same feeling. Um, I grew up and still live in the town of Manhasset, Long Island, and so many families were affected. Uh, Close to 40 families lost a loved one, either a parent who lost a child or a young mom lost uh, her spouse. We have 16 widows uh, and many children. uh, I've heard as high as 55 in the town. Uh, we're left without a parent. I know in with my four children, in each and every one of their classes was what was to become to known as a 9-11 kid, that is a child who lost a parent on that day. And um, it was a town that, you know, at the end of that day, Tuesday, September 11th, um, cars were in parking lots and no one was taking them home. And that became, in some ways, a very vivid image for people in the town um, to know who was missing, who had passed. And um, I wanted to do something and, and went to the first fundraiser for Tuesday's Children and really loved the focus on the 3,050. At that time, they didn't know how many kids, but it's 3,051 children who lost a parent and loved that it was about long-term support. So what is the story of Tuesday's Children? How did it form? 
So um, there were um, relatives, brothers, cousins of 9-11 victims who really wanted to take the children um, away from the home to get them out of the house where there was inevitably, you know, a young mom who um, was continuing to work with the city, um, the fire department, police department, and all the different, you know, uh, Port Authority that was there at the rescue and recovery um, site. And there was just a lot going on. And kids needed to be brought out of the homes and taken to someplace fun, to someplace to distract them, a ball game, a picnic. Um, in some cases, it was Broadway even. And um, so it was just to put a smile back on their face and, and allow the kids to kind of be together. So um, You took it, them to Dollywood. We in Tennessee. Took, yeah, we took them to a lot of different places. We took them, um, you know, just it was a special event resource, really, in, initially. But very quickly, the founders, you know, established a platform of programs. And those programs are still in existence to this day, whether or not it's mentoring or leadership programs or college and career guidance or other ways to give back. Um, so because helping heals. So um, I'm very proud to say that I'm not a founder, but those visionaries who founded the organization really was all more onto something because it's the same programs 15 years later. And how needed are these programs 15 years later? Well, I will tell you one thing that the kids love to be together. I, it's a way to um, sort of take us the stigma off the child or the young adult. The, the youngest kids are 14 and 15 now. And being uh, a child who no um, young person wants to be different, they all want to be just like their peers. And when they're together as a group, um, the children all lost a parent, they find that they feel um, there's a sort of normalization, there's a sense of belonging, and there's a sense of community that I don't think they can find other places, which is really important to kind of still have for the kids. Um, even with the older or the young adults, the average age of a 9-11 child, if it was eight then, it's now 22 or three. So um, they even love to be together on our junior board. Um, 30 or 40% of our junior board members are all 9-11 kids, and that number is growing. They love to give back to Tuesday's children. So whether or not it's you know participating in one of our programs or just uh, helping the organization thrive, the 9-11 kids love to be together. How do you talk to a child about violence, about terrorism, about war? Because we are still seeing it across the globe. Absolutely. So I'm not a mental health professional. We do have people that are trained, you know, in either um, the social services in one way or the other that we rely on, whether or not um, they're a social worker, psychologist or psychiatrist, uh, for the expertise in order to inform our families uh, when there is an event that could re-trigger the trauma and we hear, um, you know, anecdotally from our families that anytime something happens, it brings back the pain and the loss of that day. I would imagine the anniversary itself can do that. It does. You know, we know that at the 10-year anniversary, we had a real spike in services um, where we normally see, you know, 2,000 people a year for services. It spiked to 6,000 in the 10-year anniversary. We're expecting... Um, 
um, a bit of the same for the 15-year anniversary. I think not only because it's the 15-year anniversary, but because there's been so much going on in the world. Uh, since 9-11, there has been 140,000 people have died as a result of violence related to terrorism, and there's been 61,000 incidents. So anytime there is a Paris, a Belgium, or Orlando, you know, or wherever, it's Charleston, the list goes on, um, San Bernardino, and, and incidences in Colorado, it just brings it all back to the kids. And, and I think that and the family members and the spouses and then rescue and recovery workers. So um, we we stand strong and we stand there. Our long-term healing model is a resource for those communities. And um, I know that so many of the 9-11 family members, particularly the adults, want to help others. They want to show that um, the grief and the trauma uh, in time can kind of uh, recede. And although it becomes part of your life, it becomes something that you're able to cope with and able to um, put in a, in a place where you can move on, and in many cases, in a very positive way. What's involved with that long-term healing process? Um, what I saw is that um, in the weeks and months following 9-11, I know organizations that were fabulous, like the American Red Cross, and uh, Robin Hood Foundation that had raised a lot of money and to assist. But the assistance was really only going to be, just because it was unprecedented in scope, unprecedented in its public nature, um, the assistance was going to be um, only for a year or two. And as it turned out, 10 years later, organizations like the American Red Cross and the Robin Hood Foundation were still assisting Tuesday's children in providing uh, help. I think all of us learned that long-term assistance is really what's needed. So what um, I think worked with Tuesday's children, there were over 350 organizations that were formed post 9-11. And we're the largest and uh, the last guy standing really walking hand in hand with the children and the families is uh, we had a couple of um, elements about our programs. Again, to repeat, it was um, really about a community-based approach. It was about bringing the families together. Uh, When something like this happens, people don't necessarily see themselves as needy. These were families that were highly functioning families for the most part. And the idea of, you know, seeking help maybe not have been first and foremost in their mind, especially with people at the FDNY and the NYPD. These are people that helped others. So seeking help was not second nature. So by bringing families together and talking to them and bringing the the mental health services together at a family picnic, at a gathering during the holidays, really allowed them to access the mental health services in a very different way. And I think that dynamic really worked. And we were funded with some of the best and the brightest mental health organizations around the city, whether or not it was NYU or Columbia. Those um, counselors came to our programs and just got to know the families in a very casual way. And so they ex- access services. I also think when there's traumatic loss, there's a tendency for individuals and families to isolate, to hold tight to their kids, and really stay behind closed doors, where if it's a fun um, event, they 
don't have as an excuse. They kind of come together and um, kind of get out of the house in a way in which is very, very relatable and and just very non-threatening. So I think that dynamic of community, also the long term that we were going to be there for initially it was 18 years i think now we we don't we don't put a end date at all just because it's as as long as they need us and who knows how long that'll be um the other thing is we have um Really trusted partners that we've worked with for our programs, very well-established organizations and partnerships that deliver high-quality programs. So there isn't a loss of trust so that when family members come to our programs, they really get something very high-level and impactful. Um, the other thing, we do very evidence-based programs. So we look and you know do pre- and post-testing so we know uh, whether or not something is working. And... Um, we just um, really get our feedback from the family, so it makes our job easy. What do you need? I'm looking at a list of the programs that you offer here, family engagement, youth mentoring, career resource, helping heal, skills development, mental health and wellness, and Project Common Bond. What is Project Common Bond? So that's um, a really, really exciting program that we just held um, the – um, eighth session of Project Common Bond. Um, it started, we started forming the program in 2008, and it is a program where young people from all over the world, um, teenagers from ages 15 uh, up until 20, come together with young people from all over the world that have also been uh, lost a family member due to uh, terrorism or war. And the program is an opportunity for community building, certainly for healing, and also for peace building. So we've worked with 25 nations, hundreds of children, over 500 children have participated uh, in the program, and um, they're forever bonded, these kids. They uh, met with a young person last week that had um, been at the program, and she was communicating on social media. She said every five minutes with with, with kids from all over the world. Um, the bond of, of these uh, young people is instantaneous and profound. It's something that um, is hugs all around, no matter if they're even from opposite sides of the conflict in the Middle East, in Ireland, or wherever it is. Um, we've had kids from horrible atrocities from things like the Russian Beslan School Massacre, from just unspeakable uh, violence. And the kids have found it um, an opportunity to come together as well as to develop hope and to give back. In addition to a program like Project Common Bond, do you work with other countries in helping them to respond to crises when they occur? We do. So uh, during this program, the um, chaperones and community leaders that come together at Project Common Bond all collaborate every day, and and uh, we have discussions on what they're facing with dealing with the uh, victims and families in the different countries, and uh, we share our long-term healing model. We are actually in the process of putting our long-term healing model um, in, on a digital platform so that we can share that with countries uh, very quickly and very with much interaction and in a way that um, is accessible so that um, communities like Orlando can understand what um, they might be facing not only three months later, 
but years later with with the different families and and different um, victims that they're working with. And even closer to home, you responded when the Newtown school shooting occurred as well. Yes. So when um, uh, the incident at Sandy Hook happened in December of 2012, um, we uh, knew this was in our backyard, but uh, we as an organization were not sure because it wasn't um, specifically being labeled as an act of terrorism. When they came to us for help, um, we we felt it would be a sin of omission, so to speak, if we didn't help them. And we looked at it as perhaps even a political terrorism and uh, work with members of the community to establish a resiliency center. Uh, the Resiliency Center of Newtown is what it's called, and it's uh, still operational and will continue to be. Uh, they're the organization, I understand, that is conducting the tours uh, this week and last week with the um, Sandy Hook schools that has just been rebuilt, the new facility that is welcoming students uh, back to school this week. What about natural disasters, things like Superstorm Sandy, which can be very traumatic for families? Yeah, I think potentially, um, you know, we would assist a community like that. I think there's different dynamics there. Uh, We're a small organization, and we do not want to be you know, a mile wide and an inch deep. So we really uh, focus now with, you know, budget considerations um, on reaching out to the communities that we think we're best equipped and most logically and uh, and that our expertise aligns with. So, but I do think we've done a lot of helping heals projects for um, meaning the 9-11 families and kids have gone down to New Orleans to help, um, you know, after uh, the devastation there, the hurricane. Um, we have also done work with Superstorm Sandy, um, you know, in the uh, tri-state region. We've also um, done different um, giving back projects, you know, building a school in Costa Rica or helping build a home for a wounded warrior our mission also um, has expanded. Um, this is really coming from the 9-11 families. Our definition of all those impacted by 9-11 also includes all those that answered the call. First responders. Well, not only the first responders, which we've been helping for 2000 and, since 2007. We have government funding, a NIOSH grant to help them sign up for um, the World Trade Center Health Registry. But also, so many, um, I know in the community of Manhasset, uh, young people signed up for the military owing to the events of 9-11. So we look at all those impacted by September 11th as those that um, went to Iraq and Afghanistan Mm -hmm. with post-9-11 conflict. And we know that there are 18,000 individuals that have died either uh, as um, a result of the conflict through, um, you know, on the battlefield or as self-inflicted. There's 21 suicides a day. So of that 18,000, you know, half are in the line of duty and half are as a result of the multiple deployments and either the PTSD and and other factors uh, where they have um, taken their own lives. So uh, we don't draw a distinction between how um, the um, death occurred. We bring all those families together with the 9-11 community. So it's a way for the 9-11 community to say thank you and provide a combination of both civilian 
and military healing because we we know that so many of the military programs are just for the military, but we think this provides an opportunity for both sides to really come together and heal. What kinds of bonds have you formed with 9-11 families over the years? I know there's one program in particular that we did with the 9-11 children. I mean, there's a lot of things that come to mind and um, the Wounded Warriors. And to see um, men and women who have lost the use of their arms or legs uh, and playing um, games with the 9-11 kids and finally putting a face on all those that they went to not only defend our country but to defend um, the honor of those families that lost um, a loved one it was really one of the most emotional moments, and we've done that a number of times, brought together Wounded Warriors and the 9-11 kids, just to meet. And uh, I know for both, um, it's been a really emotional moment. I know for the 9-11 widows and also for the families of the fallen, so those military widows that come together, there is an instant kind of, um, I, I don't know what you want to call it, sort of you know, gal bond, where they're both just besties, you know, and um, we know that um, the the 9-11 widows are beacons of hope for the military widows, because they think if they can do it, we can do it. And I know that the um, 9-11 widows are not only looking to give back to uh, the military widows, but also to communities like Orlando, San Bernardino, Paris, et cetera. So we're in the process of training 9-11 widows to be experts in a lot of the programs that we delivered. We have a life management program that we um, delivered to over 400 9-11 widows, which has really kind of gave us the trust uh, from the 9-11 widows and from those families because it's a program called Creative Insight that so many of the 9-11 widows say they still use those skills that they learned back in 2003 and 2004. So we're going to be delivering that program to the military widows. We hear there's a lot of grief programs for military widows, but not a lot of skills programs and not a lot of long-term support. How are you able to do what you do? In other words, how is Tuesday's Children funded? We are funded from largely individual donations. Um, we also do have corporate and foundation um, and institutional funding and government funding. However, nearly 15 years after 9-11, you know, people, even though everyone said never forget, and we say keep the promise to these families and kids, it is harder. People's memories get shorter. Um, this, The events of 9-11 get eclipsed by other tragedies. But we want to keep our long-term healing model alive, and we want to preserve the expertise that we've garnered over the years and really not lose those lessons learned. So, um, you know, if people want to learn more about Tuesday's Children, our website is TuesdaysChildren.org. There's plenty of places to learn more, and there's plenty of opportunities to give. For those kids who were one and two years old when 9-11 happened, what kinds of questions do they bring to you all of these years later? So I think for the 14- and 15-year-olds, they're only now learning what it's what it means to be a 9-11 uh, kid. Uh, I think they don't really understand the hate. they That's what we hear. I don't understand what my mom or dad did. I don't understand 
why this happened. It seems unfathomable and unbelievable to them that this could have happened. Um, they've seen stuff on TV um, and sometimes too much of that on television. But I think it's very hard for them to understand and put that into context. I know for the parents, they really want to know in their young adult, when is 9-11 talking and when is it normal adolescent development? So, I mean, I have teenagers and I think every one of them has done a thing or two that's made me scratch my head. So when a 9-11 child does something, uh, you know, you just kind of want to understand, is this 9-11 speaking or is this, um, you know, something that I would have happened anyway? How do you help them make sense of that? So we do it in a number of ways, um, not only through our programmatical support, but in some cases, you know, we've had some, you know, even in recent years, some pretty serious acting you know, out, um, and we connect them immediately with therapists and with experts in trauma and grief and um, really try to help them understand that, because, you know, often 9-11 isn't the only thing that has happened to these families. Just like all of us, something else happened. We have a number of families where the other spouse has passed, and in some cases, um, there's one family in particular I think there's nine or ten kids in the family, and they're literally raising themselves now. Um, and that that's not the only family. We've had a number of families where uh, the mom has passed of, you know, breast cancer or other diseases. Or there's been other traumatic events that have, have happened. So that kind of um, kind of compounds the feeling of loss and trauma. And so the way we help them is by bringing them together, helping understand what they're going through and try to assign a good mental health support and prog- programmatical support that supports whatever it is they're going through. How does Tuesday's children typically mark a 9-11 anniversary? We do it in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, we try to leverage the public's memory um, by having our biggest fundraisers at this time. So uh, we have a gala on September 8th at the Pierre Hotel, where we're honoring the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Joseph Dunford, which is a really special moment for us to honor. And he's accepting our Hero Award on behalf of all those that went and served post 9-11. We're also honoring Larry Silverstein of Silverstein Properties for all that Silverstein um, Corporation has done for the kids. They've always taken kids on our Take Our Children to Work Day. They have um, funded the organization, uh, and that's at the Pierre Hotel on September 8th. Um, We also have a junior board is doing their annual Rise Up downtown event, and that's on September 9th. So we're very busy. Uh, We're also opening the NASDAQ Stock Exchange on September 9th. Uh, But in supporting families, we're doing a lot with the NFL. We're doing a lot with the Yankees and the Mets. We have 3,000 family members going to a Yankee game, 100 family members going to the Mets game. We have um, another 100 families um, going to the New York Jets, and we have family members doing opening ceremonies with the NFL all over the country. I understand you also have an event coming up at Fordham University on September 15th. Am I right? We do. We then then we're, That's a programmatical event, which we're r- really most proud of. This is something our 15 years of work are being um, 
put together and we're presenting our long-term healing model. And we are so unbelievably grateful uh, to Fordham University for for co-sponsoring this event with us. And their social work school is a partner in this. And we're getting a lot of pro bono items to be able to put together this event. And we have 30 high-level mental health um, professionals that are presenting and uh, talking about what it means to have traumatic grief and loss and what are the lessons learned since 9-11. And we are really looking forward to this event and being supported in such a way to really lay out our long-term healing model with the support of Fordham. How would you say, Terry, working with Tuesday's children has changed you as a person? I would say it's been really the um, honor of my life to give back to these families and these kids. I mean, I uh, get very emotional about it to this day. Uh, for me, um, it was a day that um, I still can't believe happened. I just still um, feel this is not the world that I brought my children into. And to have the ability to throw some good after this um, evil, can't think of another word to describe it, um, is really been an honor. Terry Sears, thank you so much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me. Terry Sears is the executive director of Tuesday's Children. The group is online at tuesdayschildren.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. You can get past editions of the show at any time at wfuv.org slash cityscape or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.